Um, <clears throat> Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, in our text this morning, we are, in a sense, picking up from where we left off last week. Uh, so last week, we looked at that really difficult text. We read it again this morning in 1 Peter 3, verses 18 to 25, uh, that speaks of Christ uh, preaching or proclaiming to the spirits who are in prison. Uh, it speaks also of uh, how the church in some way parallels that day. Uh, and how we are also saved, just like Noah was saved, we are saved through, through our baptism, uh, delivered from, from the midst of an ungodly and immoral culture. And so last week we, we focused on that text, verses 18 to 25, but this week we want to recognize that actually uh, this is one unit, all the way from verse 18 of chapter 3 all the way to verse 6 of chapter 4. So in a sense, we're, we're picking up, having dealt with some of the uh, strange aspects of that text, we're now picking up uh, and continuing the point that Peter was making in that text. Uh, and as we saw last week, the big idea here is that the Apostle Peter is concerned for these scattered believers, uh, that in the midst of their sufferings, they might start using their sufferings as an excuse for sin. That, that is the Apostle Peter's concern. And so he's been saying over and over, make sure that if you suffer, you do so with a good conscience. You, you suffer for doing what's right uh, and not for, for sinning, not for the same sins of the flesh that you see in the world around you. That can't be your reason for suffering. Uh, and so what Peter recognizes then is that there is going to be for the church uh, very real temptations to sin when we suffer, that we sin in response uh, to that suffering. Now this happens in different ways. Some of that he's been dealing with already uh, comes in the form of retaliating. Retaliating against those who are causing us to suffer. When we're treated unjustly, the temptation uh, is to punch back. You insult me, I insult you. You hit me, I hit you. Uh, you slander me, I slander you. And that's a very real temptation that the persecuted church experiences. Uh, and the moment we do that, we, we end up becoming like the world. We end up falling into the very sins for which the world stands under God's judgment. Uh, we become participants in the very works of darkness that Christ died to save us from. Uh, then, then we're no longer living as sons of God because we don't look like our Father anymore. We're no longer living as children of light because we're participating in darkness. We're engaging in, in the same things that God is preparing to judge. That's one way it happens. And in addition to that, what also often happens is that when we suffer, and this is what Peter's getting to now in this text, when we suffer, it often becomes for us an excuse to sin in other ways. It becomes sort of a blank check from God to sin. At least that's how we think of it in our minds, as if God owes me. If I'm going to suffer through this, then God owes me this sin. My life is difficult, so I get to sin with alcohol. I get to get drunk, or I get to get high, or I deserve a good time. 
or my family life is hard, uh, or my spouse is the source of my pain, and so therefore I get to sin sexually. I get to sin with pornography. The, the suffering, the heat, becomes a blank check, as it were, from God to sin. Uh, and what that's saying then is, my suffering justifies my sin. Uh, and, and when we approach our, our suffering that way, we end up engaging uh, in the very sins that Christ saved us from, the very things for which God's judgment is coming on, on this world. To use the image that, Paul ha- or that Peter has just uh, given us, this idea of our, your baptism is, is, is like the ark of Noah carrying you through these floodwaters of judgment. When we approach our sufferings as an excuse to sin, it's like jumping off of that ark right back into the floodwaters of sin. You know, as Peter uses later on the, 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 the terminology, this flood of debauchery that's around you. It's like this flood of sin that, that in our temptations, in our sins, we, we often jump back into. And so Peter recognizes this is going to be a very real temptation for Christians who suffer, uh, particularly for those who suffer as a result of their faith. Now, that might surprise us because uh, sometimes we have this romantic idea of, of persecuted Christians, uh, that, that they're somehow more holy than, than us, and that in, in their persecutions, they couldn't possibly experience the same sins and temptations as, as we do. Uh, but the reality is very much the opposite, and Peter recognizes this. In the midst of sufferings, temptation becomes uh, particularly powerful. Uh, it's very easy to let that suffering be an excuse for sin. And so Peter urges these Christians, if you suffer, let it not be for doing evil. If you suffer, let it be for doing good. There's enough evil already in the world. There's enough sin in this world. That's the very thing Christ rescued you from. Instead, if you suffer, suffer for doing good and suffer with a good conscience. Now, we saw last week how Peter encourages us in this by pointing us to our baptism. He said that our baptism into Christ is like the life raft that carries us over, over these floodwaters. Uh, but, but all, and also that that baptism is the pledge to God that, that through Christ, through His resurrection, we have a good conscience before God. And so his point there is, you're, if you're baptized into Christ, you belong to Christ, live out of that baptism. That's who you are. That's your promise from God that you're not only delivered from this world, but delivered from the sins of, of this world. So live out of that baptism. And so what we want to recognize then in in verses 1 to 6 is Peter has not changed the topic at all. In fact, he's developing the same idea. Uh, So verse 1, he says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. In other words, since that's what Christ did, since Christ came into this world to suffer, to deliver us from the, these sins, and since Christ did so with a good conscience, obeying God in the midst of His sufferings, while persecuted in every way by the world, now you are called, because you belong to Him, are called to follow in His footsteps. Now, our calling as Christians is going to involve suffering. Uh, and not just any kind of suffering, but specifically suffering for the will of God. And here's the thing. You need to know 
that's not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy to suffer. Uh, That's why Peter uses this language of of arming yourselves. It's going to be hard. It's going to be a struggle. Now, maybe maybe that's obvious. It should be obvious that suffering is not easy, but we want to remember that as we go into a season of suffering. It's going to be hard. It's going to be a trial. It will be a battle, and so you need to arm yourselves. You need to be ready for that battle. Uh, Peter wants us to know this is your calling, so be prepared for when that calling comes. Uh, Arm yourselves with the same intention. It's another way of translating this way of thinking. The same intention as Christ. He came into this world intending, knowing that his calling was to suffer. Arm yourselves with that same intention. For, he says, the one who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, I want to explain that. I had to think about that That verse for a little while. What is, it, what is meant by that? Uh, the one who has suffered has ceased from sin. At first glance, it's a bit of a strange statement, isn't it? Uh, it? It would make perfect sense if Peter had said, the one who wants to cease from sin will suffer. We, we understand that, the logic there. Um, that makes sense, and that's true. The fight against sin is a fight that will incur some suffering. It's hard uh, to fight against sin. But, but here he seems to have it the, the other way around. He says, the one who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. That's harder to understand. So we want to ask, what, what does Peter mean by that? What's he getting at with that? Now, Peter couldn't possibly mean that, that everyone who's suffering is being sanctified by that suffering. That everyone who's suffering has ceased from sin because there are countless individuals in this world who are suffering but are not being sanctified at all by by that suffering. So so that can't be what Peter means. Well, the clue to what Peter means then lies in the tenses of the verbs. Uh, Notice he uses the past tense here. The one who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Uh, And so what Peter is saying is is that there is a sense in which you, with Christ, because he's he's here still talking about the the example of Christ, you, with Christ, have already suffered. You have already suffered with him because you are united to him. So since Christ suffered, and for what purpose? To bring an end to sin. Since Christ suffered then, for that purpose, you are to count yourselves as having suffered with Christ, having died with Christ, and therefore having ceased from sin. You've left that old life. You've begun a new life. Uh, It's a change of life that accompanies a change of identity. I am one who has suffered, has died to sin, has risen to a new life together with Christ. Uh, So you're joining Christ in in his suffering, and then you're joining Christ also in his war against sin. And so then he says, arm yourselves with the same intention, which means be prepared to suffer. Uh, The suffering is coming your way. Be prepared and be intentional, uh, arming yourselves with the same intention. Be intentional about suffering well. Don't just let the suffering come whenever it comes and then figure out then how you're going to respond. Be prepared. Be intentional. Uh, And the reason 
The reason we need to be prepared uh, for that suffering is so that when we suffer, we don't all of a sudden throw away our identity in Christ and use that suffering as an excuse to re-enter into that life of sin. If we're not prepared for the suffering, uh, and then we're not conscious of the fact that, that this is our calling in Christ, then when that suffering comes and we suddenly realize this is hard, we suddenly realize how hard, how hard it's going to be, we fall right back then into the same old habits, the same sins that Christ had delivered us from. The, the sins that marked our lives before we were in Christ and the sins that mark this world uh, that is under God's judgment. Uh, and that, those, those are all sorts of sins that, that Peter, he paints a broad category here of all sorts of, of different sins. Uh, whether they are sins of, of anger and retaliation against those who are causing us pain and causing us suffering, uh, or, or whether those sufferings are just used as, as an excuse to sin in completely unrelated ways. Uh, Peter warns us, be prepared, arm yourselves with the same intention, uh, knowing that the one who has suffered has ceased from that life of sin. For he says, he says the time is past, uh, excuse me, the time that is past is already sufficient for doing what the Gentiles do. The world doesn't need more sin. Uh, it has enough. Uh, the cup of, of sin, as it were, is full. Uh, don't add to it. Now, the time that has passed is sufficient for doing what the Gentiles desire to do, living in sensuality and passions and drunkenness, uh, etc. And so Peter recognizes the temptation for us is going to be to fall back, uh, when we suffer, to fall back onto those old habits. Now, the temptation is going to be for these Christians and for us, uh, I've suffered enough now, now I deserve uh, a little bit of indulgence in the flesh. Uh, and Peter recognizes these things are going to have all of these different sins. He mentions drunkenness, orgies, uh, sensuality, passions. All of these are going to have a certain allure on the surface. They, the temptation is going to be real. They will look good. They will look attractive. Uh, and and that, that will be the case, especially when you're suffering. Uh, and so what he's saying is the, these sins become functional gods. They're gods to whom we run for refuge in the midst of our suffering. Uh, perhaps some of these very things are being exposed in, in us, in, in our own lives right now, as we're beginning to experience uh, some suffering, uh, either from the virus or, or from the economic fallout of this virus. Uh, some of these gods come to the surface, don't they? Some of these functional gods, these false refuges, these places we look to for comfort uh, that, that cannot provide us comfort. Uh, and, and these false refuges, they, they promise pleasure. They promise peace. They promise some measure of, of joy and, and satisfaction and security. Uh, whether it's sensuality, he mentions, which, which is more broadly promiscuity, ju just sexual promiscuity, uh, or passions, that is lust, uh, or drunkenness, or orgies, uh, those, those, are, those are sex parties, uh, or drinking parties, or lawless idolatry. All of these things that people give themselves over to, they have a certain allure on the surface. We're not blind to that. Uh, and, and that, of course, is why people do them. 
because they are attractive on the surface. And that's why Christians are also tempted by them. Uh, But Peter urges us here to reorient our perspective, uh, to remember these are the very things Christ saved us from. The time that's passed is already enough for that. You already have seen in your own life, and you see it in the world as well, these gods don't save. The time that's passed is enough. Don't don't go there for, for refuge. Uh, and and as, we, as we think about that, we want our minds to be engaged. That's what he means when he says arm yourselves. It means engage your minds in this. Uh, it's what he said earlier as well. Uh, gird up the loins of your minds. Uh, be prepared to get your minds in action. Uh, and part of that is, is then being able to see, to see how these false gods, these false refuges don't save. Engage your mind in that. Uh, be able to see it, uh, be able to stare these these false refuges in the face uh, and recognize these gods don't save. Uh, For for all their attraction, for all the surface-level allure that they provide, they have nothing lasting, nothing meaningful to offer. Uh, Who's ever been to a drinking party and uh, afterwards the next morning thought, well, that was really worth it? It doesn't happen. Nobody, ever. Uh, or, uh, and the same is true of, of all of these different sins. Addictions as well to, to social media. Who has spent two hours scrolling through social media and at the end of it said, well, that was worth it. Uh, that was a good way to spend uh, my time. That really gave me uh, enrichment and, and fulfillment. Well, nobody. They're, they're false refuges. They promise peace. They promise security, but they don't provide it. So engage your minds. Be able to see it. The same is true of of binge-watching Netflix. That's the the false god you see in in so much of our world right now as people are stuck at home. Uh, They have no refuge to turn to, and so Netflix becomes their their refuge. Uh, As well, substance abuse becomes a a false refuge. This will will carry me through these hard times. This will will give me my sense of meaning and and happiness and, and fulfillment, and it doesn't. It's a God that lies to you. Uh, the, the same is true of anger and bitterness. We don't often think of, of anger and bitterness as, as, uh, as an addiction, but it is. It promises some happiness. It promises some meaning. Uh, when we get our, our blood boiling and uh, angry at, at all these people that are making these decisions or, or whatever we're angry about, it promises satisfaction and it doesn't provide it. It's a false Refuge. Uh, These are false gods that promise what they cannot deliver. And what they do deliver is misery and anger and brokenness and ultimately death. And of course, lest we forget the wrath of God. And and this is what most of the world lives for. That's what he's saying. He says, look around. Look at what the Gentiles do. This is what the world lives for. Uh, in Roman times, uh, the, these, these orgies were, were all over the streets, and, and the brokenness and misery that came out of them uh, was, was painfully obvious, not just for those who participated in them. Uh, oftentimes, the spread of diseases uh, was rampant in, uh, through, through such parties, but he, also the brokenness of those who were abused and crushed and hurt by them. 
Oftentimes these orgies involved slaves and concubines, young girls sometimes that, that were abused to satisfy the lusts of these, of these men. And, and you might ask, how well, for all the pain, for all the brokenness that causes, how well does that God deliver? You know, much the same could be said of pornography in our day. Uh, and, and all the victims that it causes, all the brokenness and hurt that it causes. And not only do you wreck the lives of others, but you get nothing for yourself. It's a God that does not save. Uh, Peter mentions as well drunkenness and, and drinking parties. Uh, another false God promising refuge uh, and instead delivering brokenness pain, and damaged lives. Damaged lives of your, uh, of your own life and, and the damaged lives of your loved ones. It does not save. Uh, and so we shouldn't think for a moment that the temptations of our culture are unique. Uh, what we see here, the list that he provides here, sounds a lot like our culture today. Sounds a lot like every culture throughout human history. These are not unique temptations. And the church of God has, has been called throughout the centuries out of that darkness and into the light of God. And so Peter has us reorient our, our perspective uh, to recognize these are the very things Christ died to save you from. Uh, the time and effort, uh, you think of all the money that's poured into the pornography business, the time and effort that the world pours into these false gods, the sacrifices they give to these gods uh, is enough to show that they don't, they don't deliver what they promise. And so we need to see that as well uh, with, with our minds engaged, uh, that for all the allure of these things, that life is empty, and, and worse still, the wrath of God is coming on this world precisely because of those things. That's, brothers and sisters, what you've been delivered from. Now, all of those things uh, that, that sometimes uh, they look like freedom, uh, they claim to be freedom. Live free. Do what you want. Do what gives you happiness. It sounds like freedom. Uh, and the Christian, uh, looking at Christ and looking out at this broken world, the Christian recognizes these things are not freedom. Uh, they are rather slavery and misery. Uh, it's emptiness. It's hunger with heavy iron chains. Uh, and you only need to look at this world to see that. And you can pursue that lust you can pursue that drunkenness your entire life long, and all you will have is a long trail of, of misery and brokenness behind you. And it's the furthest thing possible from freedom. It's enslavement to your own passions, enslavement to your own addiction. Uh, and we, we look at the brokenness that it causes on the lives of others. Uh, how many children need to grow up without a father uh, to discover, to, for the world to finally see that the God of alcohol does not save? Uh, how many battered wives need to live with physically abusive husbands uh, for, for the world to see that God does not save? And what's so sad is that generation after generation, men and women will choose that God over and over and over. So Peter says the time is past for that. Uh, it's already sufficient. Let's go in a different direction. 
Uh, Peter knows we're going to feel the force of those temptations. Uh, We might feel them pull at our hearts even more powerfully when we're suffering, when we need that sense of of refuge. But the Christian perspective recognizes that that's the the very life that Christ uh, delivered us from so as to live a new life by the power of the Spirit that truly is freedom. Uh, It's freedom not just obeying whatever impulses take over our bodies or our minds, but freedom, true freedom, is knowing the one who made us, being known by the one who made us, and living, being alive according to his will. Uh, Experiencing his hand at work in our lives, even though even though there's an element of suffering in that. It is a thousand, a million times better than the life that we were delivered from. That is freedom. It's being made, or it's being who you were made to be. It's enjoying peace with the God for whom you were created to live in peace. Now, Peter recognizes choosing that life, following Christ in in that course, in that life, will come at a cost. It will come especially at a social cost. Your friends, your neighbors, your colleagues, sometimes your family members are surprised, he says, surprised when you don't join them in that same flood of debauchery. And so he says they will malign you. They will, in other words, make fun of you. They they will take pleasure in seeing you fail. And this is because the world that remains in rebellion against God hates everything that points them to the holiness of the God against whom they are sinning and in rebellion. And the moment you become a Christian and you pursue the life that Christ has given you, you become a stark reminder to this world that their lives are unholy, that they are under the judgment of God. I look at how right now in New York, how the world is reacting to seeing uh, the, the Christian organization Samaritan Ministries setting up tents to be able to provide some medical assistance and care to those who are suffering from the virus. And the world is saying, we don't want you here. It doesn't matter. Maybe you will save lives, but we don't want anti-LGBTQ or anti-abortion groups setting up shop in our parks. We don't want this reminder that God is holy and that we are under his judgment. And the world will do everything they can to see Christians fail. And some of you have already experienced this in very painful ways. You get called nasty names. Uh, people spread, spread lies about you. And, and of course, in Rome, in Peter's day, it, it was still so much worse. And so here, Peter would have us keep perspective in this world that's under God's judgment. Not only is that life empty and miserable, It does not deliver what it promises. Uh, No no matter how much fun they pretend to be having, they're not having fun. Uh, But even worse, uh, verse 5, he says, they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Every single individual in this world is going to give account to King Jesus. And perhaps that's why so many in this world are terrified of the prospect of death. Uh, And and that's why for for us, it really doesn't matter. Though they malign us, it really doesn't matter what they think. It matters what he, what God thinks. His is the only opinion that will matter to us forever. 
And, and whether they give account to him in this life, should Jesus return in our generation, or, or whether uh, they give account to him at the end of all things, they will give account. He is the judge of the living and the dead, which is a way of saying nobody gets away with anything. Now, Peter uh, reinforces this with a rather strange verse uh, in verse 6. He says, For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way that God does. Now, there's a couple uh, ways we could interpret this this verse, uh, and and at least there's one thing that it it could not possibly mean. Uh, It could not possibly mean um, that, that the gospel was preached to those who are in hell. Uh, some have tried to interpret the, the verse this way, that, that Peter's saying the gospel is preached to those who are in hell so that they might have a second chance to, to repent. Well, Scripture doesn't teach that anywhere. Uh, scripture says it's appointed once for a man to die, and then comes judgment. Uh, there's no suggestion anywhere else in Scripture for opportunity for a second chance at, at repentance. Uh, nor would that make any sense in this context because then Peter would be saying they're going to give account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead, but it's okay, they'll have a second chance later. That's not what Peter is saying. Uh, The the best interpretation uh, of this passage is the one that was held by all of the church fathers. Remember that they are the ones who are closest to Peter's day, and so oftentimes that makes them uh, reliable for for how how was this understood in the the New Testament church. Uh, And and the way it was interpreted then is is in connection with what we saw last week. After Christ's death, when he went and he proclaimed judgment to those angels in prison in Tartarus and in Hades, Uh, He also proclaimed judgment to those people from that day of Noah who who were deserving of God's judgment and waiting there for for God's judgment, waiting for their doom. And Christ, when he went there, proclaimed judgment to them and proclaimed salvation to the righteous who were waiting for the Messiah, who were waiting for the final day. Uh, That was the view that was held by by the church, and and so uh, I would suggest that's probably the best one. Uh, some have, have tried, we could possibly interpret this to say uh, that it's, it's not referring to the dead, but to those who are now dead. Uh, so the idea is uh, that, that Christ preached the gospel to those who have since died, but they were alive at the time that he, he preached it. Um, it it's possible, but, but it is a strange way of speaking. Uh, in, in the Greek, it doesn't say those, the gospel was preached to those who have died or now have died or those who are now dead. It says the gospel was preached to those who are dead. Uh, and, and so I would suggest that the interpretation that was held by the early church is the best one here. It's recognizing uh, the gospel is preached on earth and the gospel is preached for eternity. To those who, 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 who have died uh, in Christ, the gospel of hope is preached to them, to those who have died without Christ. The gospel's preached, but it's the, it's the, the, two-sided, the, the two-edged sword of the gospel the, that is salvation to those who believe and condemnation to those who don't. Uh, either way, though, the point that Peter is making is clear enough, isn't it? Jesus is not just the judge of the living. Uh, some might say, well, as long as I can get away with it, as long as I can enjoy a, a long life of, of drunkenness and orgies and promiscuity and immorality, as long as I can get away with it and nothing happens to me while I'm still alive, who cares? 
I'm better off. Well, never mind that as we've seen that that's a miserable life to live. It really does not deliver on the promises it makes. But even more, Peter's saying, Jesus is not just the judge of the living. He's the judge of the dead as well. No one gets away with anything. And perhaps some of you recall, uh, was it last year or maybe two years ago already, uh, the passing away of, of Hugh Hefner. Uh, he's the, uh, the founder and owner of Playboy. Uh, lived a, a life of sexual immorality his entire life long, even into his old age. Uh, and he bragged about having slept with thousands of, of Playboy models. Uh, and, and he died, by all appearances anyways, an unrepentant man, proud of the life that he lived. Uh, and uh, the newspapers and journals even celebrated him as an icon of, of sexual freedom. Now, one might ask, as we've seen, one might ask whether that life was really as wonderful as, as he claims it was. Uh, is it really so wonderful to live such an empty, profoundly empty and lonely and abusive life? Uh, is it really so wonderful to, to damage and dishonor so many thousands of women and to degrade your own body in the process? Is that really the good life? But even more, Hugh Hefner and the countless others that, that have lived that life before him, uh, like Solomon, like Nebuchadnezzar, like the Caesars of Rome. This is not a new thing. Uh, and many others whose names have been altogether forgotten to history, they still will stand before King Jesus, and the, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and they will spend eternity paying the consequences for that life. They will give an account. No one gets away with anything. And Peter gives that to us for comfort. Uh, though the world may persecute you, though they will malign you, though they may do worse to you, it's a short time, and they will give an account to King Jesus. Uh, the judgment of God puts everything into perspective, just as it did in Noah's day, <clears throat> when, when Noah was maligned and mocked for, for building the ark, and, and even persecuted, uh, as some have argued, for, for building the ark. Uh, when, when judgment didn't look like it was coming. It didn't look like a worldwide flood was coming, but it came, and on the day it came, none of the maligning, none of the mocking mattered anymore. What mattered was who's in the boat, and, and the world was drowning while they watched Noah being saved. No matter how alluring the temptations, no matter how strong the social pressure, everything comes back into perspective when we stand before the judgment. Uh, the judgment of God. Uh, when we consider the, the, the terrible uh, judgment that the flood of debauchery and immorality is, is awaiting. So, brothers and sisters, we too must be armed with the same intention, prepared to suffer in, in this world and to suffer well since we've died to Christ and, and are united to him so that we can live the rest of our time not in the life of the Gentiles, not in, in, in the empty pursuits of this world, but instead living by the Spirit in true freedom, knowing and living with our Creator and doing his will. Now that does mean there will be suffering ahead of us, there's the suffering that comes from denying, uh, the, the denying the flesh and, and dying to our sin. Uh, there's the suffering that comes from uh, in, in actively putting our, our sin to death. Uh, the, the brothers and sisters in life renewal right now are experiencing some of that suffering acutely. Uh, it, it's hard. It takes work, and it can be painful putting our sins to death. 
It's worth it a thousand times over, but it's hard on the way there. Uh, And then there's the suffering that comes at the hands of the world uh, when friends or family or others turn against us uh, and and find our life offensive because it points out to them the, the, the holiness of God that stands against them. And there is, too, the suffering of, of just living in a, in a broken world and, and the suffering of experiencing a taste of the judgment of God against this world. We recognize that death and suffering and disease are the consequences of sin, and they're the call of, of the holy God to a world to repent, to turn back to Him. And even though as a church we, we've done so, Yet we do experience the pain of that suffering because we still dwell in this world. So Peter calls us to be prepared, to be ready to suffer as long as we're in the flesh because we've died to that old life and are made alive by the power of the Spirit to do the will of God. And one day when we stand before the throne of God, it will all be worth it. It will all make sense. And our only hope, our only goal is to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Amen. Let's respond to God's word by singing together from hymn 51.